Hello, everyone. You're listening to the very popular Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a fine show for you this week. As usual, we're going to talk to Stephen Garrett about Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the new Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that will be airing in your hearts and minds forever. And we're also going to talk to Matthew Ehrlich about the new season of The White Lotus, airing on HBO Max. Danny Gallagher, a new contributor to Book and Film Globe, will be joining me to talk about Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic story, a satirical biopic now airing on the Roku channel. We will not be featuring any Weird Al songs in this episode because we are a popular podcast and as such, we get a lot of listeners and people are paying attention and we cannot afford to sample any song, even one by someone as kind and generous as Weird Al Yankovic. We'll be right back to talk about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. It's been five minutes since we last discussed a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie or TV show, so thank God we're back on that train. Black Panther Wakanda Forever opens in theaters right now, uh, and uh, Stephen Garrett wrote a review of it. I have seen it as well because I am a Marvel completist, and we're going to talk about it. Hello, Stephen. <laughs> Hello. 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 Yeah. Wakanda Forever, um, and uh, Pond, what Taco Plan Never. The, uh, no. <laughs> Not the, yet. Maybe they'll have their spinoff movie. Yeah. They're, well, that's the thing about Wakanda Forever is it is definitely uh, continues the story of the mythical and powerful African hidden kingdom of Wakanda uh, that started in Black Panther. But it also introduces a an entire world of undersea Mexicans, basically. <laughs> they're, they're all, they live off the coast of the Yucatan. Peninsula, but can somehow travel to Boston in, in, in the Charles River in like an hour riding whales. So, yeah. like JetBlue, but without the stopover in Houston. I mean, let, let, let alone the fact that Wakanda is apparently landlocked in East Africa, and yet these guys can show up, no problem. In the lake. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Secret, secret tunnels, probably. Well, they have magic water bombs. <laughs> they can... And the magic water bombs, exactly. <laughs> it's a comic book movie. Yeah. Let's be clear. This is not, um, you know, a Charles Burnett film. <laughs> you know, this is <laughs> you know, we're not we're not like you know this this is not a sweet sweetback's badass song. We're not like you know this is a very like broad popular movie um, that has pretty much very very few um, uh, sort of Anglo characters and very few you know, uh, Caucasian characters, let us say, you know, that's, that's right. The token white Martin Freeman is back. And, and Julie right. Dreyfus is also token and white. Um, and that's true. This film as well. There's, you know, but mostly it's, uh, you know, white people exist uh, to kind of get in the way of the main conflict between the Wakandans and the sea Mexicans um, led by one of my favorite characters from the whole Marvel canon, Prince. Uh, really? Yeah. Namor. Really? Namor. Well, Namor is, um, is the uh, he's the Submariner, and he's the he's the second oldest Marvel Comics character. Captain America was the first, but Namor's been around since the 1940s. He is wow. he's, he's almost as old as Superman and Batman, and we haven't seen a lot of him um, older than Aquaman. We haven't seen a lot of him in in movies just because uh, Marvel the MCU didn't own the rights. There was one of these rights disputes, but now he's here. 
Um, really? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so what's interesting, uh, I guess we should talk about whether or not this film is good before I start blabbing. Uh, <laughs> look, fascinated by what I, I, you know, look, I was humbled when you allowed me to review this because I am a civilian when it comes to Marvel stuff. So I am fascinated by what has been revealed in this new phase of the movies. Prince Namor in the um, in the comic books is definitely like an other. Like he's got kind of he, he doesn't look like a surface person. He's got the pointy ears. He's got the um, green bathing suit that he wears. He's got the <laughs> he, he's very powerful. I mean, he's, he's definitely like not like just a white guy, you know, from from Brooklyn or what? Where like a lot of Marvel <laughs> superheroes, um, old school Marvel superheroes. But he's not Mexican, you know. He's like he's not like a. You, you know, he's not someone who was driven into the sea by colonialist conquistadors. You know? uh, well, he is now. Yeah, he is. But now he is. You know, now, <laughs> now, now he's an, now it's like he is. He is. A, he is a full identity. Basically, like um, basically like sea Mayans. I don't even see Mexicans. They're like they're pre Mexico. They're Mayans. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. They, so like, you, from Tulum. Did you? And and so I'm assuming when you went into the movie, you knew full well that. Namor was in it, and this was the Submariner character being introduced. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, of okay. course. Like, right. I mean, you, I had to watch. All I had to do was watch a preview and read like seventeen articles. It <laughs> 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 was pretty much good to go, you know. But the the core of the movie um, is basically uh, an extended um, elegy for Chadwick Boseman, you know, who yeah. uh, who's right. who was you know basically supposed to be the star of this film. Uh, as originally conceived, but of course he died of cancer, and they basically have uh, T'Challa or the Black Panther die of cancer before the movie starts. But he's in it; yeah. you can feel his presence throughout the movie, and I feel like that's the thing that this film does really well. Is, you know, it's like the the, the opening uh, credit, uh, title Marvel title scene is just all T'Challa. There's no other Marvel characters. That's you know, and, and silent, silent, no music either. It's, it's quite touching, and I thought I found the. The actual last five minutes of the movie, when it finally calmed down, um, to be quite moving as well. So you know, and there's just there's lots of there's a sort of extended mourning and crying, and it, and it feels earned, and it feels like the actors are actually mourning this guy. You know, <laughs> I mean, they are, and which they are rightly so. Yeah, I think it's one of those rare instances, tragically, where the actors are truly mourning the loss of. Uh, another person in the film because they truly are gone. Yeah. yeah. And so, okay, so that's good. You know, and that gives the movie um, some emotional depth that I feel like hey. that is, ma- I, you know, that is lacking. Even like when, say, Tony Stark died in the uh, second, uh, you know, Thanos Avengers movie, it's like, well, okay, but Robert Downey Jr. is definitely still alive. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have to say, also, I felt that the, uh, the end credits scene, uh, of which there's only one, Absolutely, for me at least, the most emotional end credit scene I've ever seen, or post credit scene, whatever you want to call it. Did you feel the same way? Well, I mean, I don't know. I felt like the 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 surprise element was a little uh, a little flat, maybe. But yeah, but I mean, it was really, but, but very it was, sweet. But it was sweet, and it was real. Um, I can't really say all that for the rest of the movie, which is like huge, bloated, and then sometimes murky special effects mess. I mean, you know, I, I was, I was, I have to say I was like kind of disappointed um, at the undersea city. You know, I felt like I, I had trouble seeing it. Well, yeah. Well, like what's going on there? Where, where, you know, why is there no octopus playing the drums? Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
like there was an Aquaman, which is the greatest moment in cinematic history. Uh, you know, so it wasn't, they didn't, they were kind of drippy, you know, they weren't fun. You know, Wakanda is so appealing because like they, those people seem to really be having a good time in Wakanda, you know, being, right. being the most powerful nation on earth, living their sort of uh, Afrofuturist dream, eating their delicious food, party and looking fly as hell you know you know what I mean? awesome threads yeah whereas like the the sea mexicans were kind of like murking around playing like through 500 year old ball games in the seaweed you know and it's just kind of like i don't know yeah they, they also have a very weak sort of hand gesture you know like wakanda forever has that chest thumping which is dope and then these kind of sea mayans have this weird like open clam thing they do with their hands it kind of looks like they're catching a softball yeah, it's like, hello, Weak. hello, hello. <laughs> you know, it's not. Yeah. yeah, and so I don't know. They could have. It, it could have been more awesome. And while uh, the the Namor uh, Tenal Huerta, who plays Namor, looked good. You know, he looked great. He very, very, yeah. very wet and muscular. Um, I, I felt like he was his performance was was kind of flat. You know, and uh, yeah. and kind of kind of weird. So I got to say, though, pivoting to uh, some of the other actors, like I was very pleasantly surprised that, you know, fully halfway into the movie, I thought to myself, oh, my God, the main characters carrying this film are black women. And it's Angela Bassett's movie almost completely as much as it's Letitia Wright's. And, you know, that sequence where it's what Letitia Wright and Denai Guerrera go over to meet who I guess, uh, what's that? The, the, the teenage girl at, uh, in MIT. Williams, the girl Iron Man from MIT. Girl, the girl Iron Man, you know, and yeah. there's an extended sequence where it's just the three of them fighting, you know, against the baddies. And I thought, God, this is so amazing. Like it's I've never seen this in a big movie. It's the most 2022 thing. Cause I, I, yeah. I follow pop culture. Like, a lot of our heroes are black women now, and this movie just is the is the apogee of it. I mean, you have you have Letitia Wright, you have Angela Bassett, you have uh, Dominique Thorne is the is the girl who plays Riri Williams. You know, um, Okoye. You have Akela Cole popping up. Akela Cole. Cameo. It just goes on and on and on. It's just one after another of these like beautiful muscles. Oh my god! Confident. You know, oh, and Lupita, and Lupita Nyong'o is James Bond, basically, right? Nyong'o doesn't even show up until an hour and 10 minutes into the movie. Um, and, you know, and wearing some fantastic form fitting suits. I got to say. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, and what, you know, if, if I may be a man for a second, uh, <laughs> and, you she know, made that looked good. Yeah. So she, she looked real good. So, uh, real good. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I understand that and I appreciate it. Um, and it's significant in a way it was just, you know, I felt some of the CGI felt a little weak. I I I was just like not as entranced by the Sea Mexicans as 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 I wanted to be. You know, I would have they needed to be as awesome as as Wakanda, so there could be more tension between them. You know, well, and I have to say too, you know, one of the things that they, you know, when Black Panther the first movie came out, they were talking about Afrofuturism, and you saw the state of the art, very high tech, futuristic elements and technology you didn't really get that in uh Talukan quite as much it just seemed like oh no, no this is a mayan like civilization that happens to have some exploding water bombs i don't know i didn't get a sense of their tech quite as much they, i mean they obviously have some because they're able to yeah. 
you know, and they, they're super, they're super powerful and all that. But, you know, I, it just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't fun. You know, that, that that's the thing. It's like it, that need, it needed to be more fun. There's not a lot of fun in this movie. It's like a funeral mixed yeah. with, with the bat, with, with a battle scene so, or three. And so, yeah. you know, you, you know, you, you, there's almost no laughs at all. And, you know, Marvel movies uh, are noted for like their comic interludes and there's just not, there's not a lot of it. You know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus has a few quips, makes a few, you know, quips. But do you think, Does do you think that's... Dance? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it feels apt, though. I mean, do you feel like they should have made it a little more fun? Or do you well, think Black that would have been a little distasteful? Black Panther wasn't, it wasn't a lot of fun either, honestly. Um, yeah. Although, you know, again, like there was, there were, there was some... Uh, you know, some more lighthearted action, like in that nightclub scene and all that. You know, there, there. I guess the, I guess the stuff in Boston was was a little less. Um, dark. That was fun. A little less dark, and it was less dark, and you could actually see what was going on. Right, and, right. Again, was, the, the, I just feel like they, you know, maybe it's hard to film underwater. I don't know. I've never tried it. <laughs> Prob- <laughs> probably is. Maybe, maybe Ryan Coogler are going to take in some lessons from James Cameron. But speaking of underwater, so let's get back to Namor before we, we cut off. So, yeah, so, like, you know, the he in the um, in the comics, you know, he's not he's not a Mexican. He's not a he's not a he's not a driven uh, beneath the waves. And, you know, and it's and, but he's like this very um, important character in the Marvel Universe because he like he pops up or he mar- he uh, ends up stealing the wife of the leader of the Fantastic Four. And takes, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's really dramatic. And like that. They have an affair, and he takes her to live under the sea with him and all that. So there's a lot of, you know, Namor is, um, is a pain in the ass, you know? Interesting. He's not really a bad, he's not a bad, he's not like a Thanos-level bad guy. Like, he's not out to destroy the world, but he has sort of complicated motivations. And it's, you know, it's good to see him. It's good to see, and, and, and they're setting it up, too. They set this up in the movie that he was basically, like, born under basically born a mutant and they're setting yeah. up this whole mutant thing because they're starting to like uh they're starting to lean toward bringing the x-men into the marvel cinematic universe they had something in the ms marvel tv show where she says she's a mutant there is a in the she hulk tv series you see her there's a web page that talks about a man with claws getting into a bar fight <laughs> they're bringing back Wolverine in the new it's happening yeah so it's all coming it's they're they're kind of bringing they're kind of bringing some different elements into it and you know so there's also the sort of larger world building and then they bring in uh girl Iron Man right as well what do you think of her there's always the you know in a Marvel movie in addition to the um the big plot line there's always extra little extra (laughs) They're, they're, they're planting seeds so they, they can, you know, poison our minds with their pop culture garbage for the next 10 years. I'm here for it. I'll, it's just the MCU is going to follow me into my grave. I'm, I'm pretty much um, – I have, you just have and to – And you're down with that. Yeah. I, there's, the, I have no choice. Are, were, you, were you happy with Miri, with the, the actor, they, Dominic Thorne, that they got to play? You know, I don't really know that character that well. She sort of posed oh, okay. uh, well. I thought she was okay. Yeah. You know, I thought she was okay. You know, my uh, my wife was like, she's like, she's she found it amusing. There were a lot of scenes between her and Letitia Wright, and they're like, they're like, but they're both kind of short, you know. So, <laughs> it's like it's like I, it was kind of like watching like 
like two really, really confident college students <laughs> having, <laughs> having a conversation. Uh, but that's it. That's the new MCU. It's like black women are are are, are in charge, and you know, large and in charge. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. I think uh, it it, uh, it really just felt like the most radical part of that movie was that they didn't even treat it as though it were radical. It was just like, nope, of course, you know, of course we're following Letitia right it's the through way, this whole thing. It's the way we live now, Stephen. And, and, I think it's right. And, and as two white guys, we are well qualified to comment on this. <laughs> exactly. All right. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is in theaters and then on Disney Plus forever. All right. All right. Peace, Chadwick. months ago, we published a piece on Book and Film Globe, headlined something like, do we really need a season two of The White Lotus, or we don't need a season two of The White Lotus, something along those lines. I didn't really know how to answer that query, because at the time, my HBO subscription wasn't active, so I hadn't actually seen uh, season one of The White Lotus, but now I have seen it, and I've also seen the first two episodes of season two, and my answer would be yes, absolutely, we need a season two, we need a season three. I'd say five, six seasons. I'd be fine with White Lotus going on and on. I have a, our TV critic, Matthew Ehrlich, here with me to talk about The White Lotus. Hello, Matthew. Hey, how's it going? I am well. So, yeah, so I love this show. I feel like it's sort of a – how do you put it? It's like a uh, it's like a cross between Black Mirror and The Love Boat slash Fantasy Island. It's like a modern exactly. take. It's a modern take on those uh, sort of anthology shows that we grew up watching where like celebrities would gather in a glamorous location and live out various uh, life dramas in either silly or serious ways. But the difference is, is that was those shows were created by Aaron Spelling and this show is created by Mike White, who mm. is, I would say, a slightly more of an artistic uh, writer than Aaron Spelling ever was. So yeah, so, right. so uh, and it was so, also they're kind of born from the pandemic in a sense that uh, season one of White Lotus was largely like this. You know, there's this res- there's this abandoned resort. Um, you know, no one's going there because of COVID. It would be a great place to shoot. Uh, and there are all these actors that were not doing anything because these projects were canceled. So you get these powerhouse actors like Steve Zahn and Connie Britton. And, um, you know, you were able to make this ensemble piece largely because, you know, you had an available uh, set and you had available actors. Yeah. HBO approached Mike White and said, hey, do you want to do something? And he came up with this sort of very fast. Very, um, he writes very fast. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, fir- the first season of The White Lotus was you know, sort of a three, there were three intersecting, but set or four intersecting with separate plot lines. Um, it was mostly like a commentary on social class and, and the tourism industry and how it relates to colonialism. And there are lots of little intimate personal dramas and, and upstairs, uh, downstairs, there was kind of an upstairs, downstairs thing where you had the uh, people who worked at the hotel versus the people who stayed at the hotel who were very rich. The white Lotus is, you know, a high end or higher end, even that's it. It's four seasons ish, you know, maybe somewhere between the four seasons and Amon, um, in yeah. terms of their their exclusivity. I mean, they're still large hotels. They're not like you know these ten room boutique ma- mansions. Uh, but they're you know the second season is set in Sicily, and there's less of that class dynamic going on. I mean, there is there are two 
major characters who are young prostitutes. And I guess mm. you could say that, that uh, the class dynamic sort of extends there, but it's clear that the show is not focusing as much on the hotel staff as the first season did. Right. So I don't know. I love it. I think this, the season is great. It's, it's, it's very, uh, well, the first season was, was about money and there was some sex on the side. I feel like the second season is about sex and there's some money on the side. Like it's a very, right. very sexual show. Right. So, all right. Um, so that said, so, I mean, what, what are you liking about season two? Well, you know, it's funny because I um, have a lot to complain about with this show. And yet I'm watching it, you know, every time the you know, an episode drops on Sunday, I'm kind of there and, uh, and watching it, you know, with bated breath. And, you know, when you said to me, you know, do you want to do White Lotus? You know, usually you'll assign me something and I'll have to go and watch it and then write something. You were like, do you want to do White Lotus with me on this podcast? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen it. And, um, and yet, um, I think it's very interesting because we're all of a sudden, maybe because of our, you know, economically and culturally, there are a lot of these upstairs, downstairs kind of things going on right now, like um, Triangle of Sadness, for instance, uh, that boat. Um, one of the things that I find exasperating about this show is that the people that work at the hotel seem to, and I'm sure that it's really like when you're in the service industry, it's, you know, it's kind of a nightmare. Um, but people who are in the service industry are kind of, you know, they know what to expect. They're kind of used to it. And in triangle of sadness, you know, as crazy as those rich people were on the, on that cruise ship, the staff seemed to know exactly what they were getting into and because they were doing it because the tips were so good at the end, but you knew they were having a bad time, but they weren't surprised by it. And I feel as though, in this series, there's a lot of like, oh my God, rich people are being mean to me. What's going on here? Um, the other thing is that the two, pro like the, the <clears throat> I guess they're not two prostitutes. There's a prostitute and her friend. And every time they come into the hotel, they're like, oh my God, there's a prostitute in the hotel. We must rid the, this, this, we must rid this hotel of a prostitute. And it's like anyone who knows anything about hotels knows that prostitutes and hotels are like, you know, the popcorn industry and the movie industry. I mean, they're, well, they're, they're, they, they literally made that point in episode two, though, where the main prostitute was like, you know, this, this hotel was created for people like me. Right. So, but you don't have to explain that to the person who's running the hotel. The person who's running the hotel knows that already. There's some I sexual mean, tension, like not, yeah. not like they're going to make out, but like tension uh, between Valentina, who's running the hotel and the main prostitute. There's some kind of, some sort of like weird Sicilian class distinction that I don't yes. quite get, but it's a, that's a kind of a subplot. Like the main plots uh, involve, well, there are these, I would say the main plot of the season, there are these two very rich millennial couples. Um, and I don't have all the actors names in front of me. Aubrey Plaza is uh, one of the women. And then there are three other young, extremely attractive actors yeah, I've long been a fan of Megan Fahey, who is on, um, I'm embarrassed to say this, The Bold Type, which I actually watched largely because of her. She's just got this very sort of sunny, radiant attractiveness that just kind of uh, is very compelling to watch. Yeah, she's quite magnetic. Um, and I also, um, you know, and the, the two guys are also are, are played their parts, I think, really well. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's 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 some tension there, possibly some partner swapping. We don't exactly know. And then there's a plot about uh, involving Michael Imperioli, 
plays an L.A. movie producer who, with a sex addiction, he's the reason the prostitutes are along. And he, he has come to Sicily with his elderly father, played by F. Murray Abraham, and his son. They're going to researching family roots or something like that. And so they're there in the mix. And then, uh, you know, and there's some other stuff going on. Oh, and there's Jennifer Coolidge, of course. Of who, course. Who is in the first season. And she's sort of like the charo of the White Lotus. Um, <laughs> right? And she's the only person, and she and her husband uh, are the only two people who are consistent cast members. So they're like a link back to the first season. Right. She's, she's like, a, yeah. you know, in the, in the clever ads for the early season, uh, for the White Lotus, they were, you know, they just had her quoted as being like a five diamond member or whatever. And right. Just, it's on, yeah. So she's, she was a know, petal and now she's a flower or something like right. that. Yeah. She's very wealthy. She's a, a half billionaire, not quite a billionaire. She's an heiress uh, and she's got a lot of problems. Uh, and, but, but Jennifer Coolidge is so funny in this show. I mean, just, just watching her eat, you know, they, they, the, the camera will stop and watch her eat for two minutes, you know, or there was that I scene episode two where she, uh, she she and Greg are on a Vespa and she swallows a bug <laughs> trying to call out the bug you know there's just some great stuff Every both the episodes of, of this second season so far I've had at least one moment where I've had to pause uh, the show just because I was laughing so hard like, it was the scene where and my favorite is when they're at the buffet and you know there are those plastic domes that go over the croissants and the fruit and she picks one up and she picks up another one and she drops one and it goes boing on the floor and she goes at least it's not glass and you know that that was probably not in the script that that just happened and she improvised that or something like that yeah so there's just a lot of good stuff in the show I don't know I mean I I don't I feel like it's uh you know it's a fun commentary on on upper middle to upper class tourism but it's also just kind of like a juicy sexy soap opera with a with a mystery involved like who you know unlike um the last season where I knew who had died at the end because I'd read spoilers. Well, uh, mm. I, you know, I have no clue who the corpse is right. in the water. Right. And when I was watching, I was watching white Lotus as it was unfolding. I didn't binge it. I actually watched it while it was on. I had no clue who was going to die. So that was kind of fun to watch. Yeah. So it's like a comedy, but it's also a drama and it's also a murder mystery. And I just feel like it's a, this is a formula that can work really well because what Mike white does is he takes some well-known actors, uh, I'll, you know, Murray Abraham, Alfred Plaza, Steve Zahn, Connie Britton, and he mixes them in with people you may have seen other places, but who maybe aren't complete household names, um, and mm-hmm. who are and who are young and sexy, and mm. he just throws them into these glamorous. You know, that's the thing too is like the show is very, very lush, and very glamorous. You know, you want to go to Sicily, you want to go to Hawaii. It's not like it's right. It's not like you're saying vacation is hell. Yeah, I mean, I think that what happened was uh, the first season, they seemed to be making a, like a statement about about class, about race. Um, and then it turns out to be kind of a fluffy murder mystery. And then you go, well, wait a minute, there was really not much to that. But then once you accept the fact that it's kind of this fluffy, sexy murder mystery with some, you know, content thrown in, um, it's actually quite enjoyable. With some light, smart class commentary that it, it yeah. is, you know, that, that it's not, you know, Triangle of Sadness, which you mentioned before, that's like a didactic <laughs> anti-capitalist movie, whereas The White Lotus is, you know, is more nuanced, I guess, or less, I, maybe it's less nuanced. I don't know. All I know is that, you know, 
I would go stay at a White Lotus. I wouldn't go on the Triangle of Sadness cruise ship. Oh, I would totally go on the Triangle of Sadness cruise ship. <laughs> well, depending on arms dealer. Yeah. Just depending on how it ended up for you. But I mean, wouldn't, don't, I don't know. <laughs> That's true. I would, I would, I would definitely enjoy staying at the White Lotus in like the Smoky Mountains or, you know, or on, you know, on Cape Cod. It'd be very nice. Very nice to spend a week at the White Lotus. Definitely. Assuming, assuming you weren't the one getting murdered. That is true. There's always the, you know, in every season someone gets murdered, I bet. I, I, yeah, that's, but that's, that's, it's such a great gimmick. I wish I'd thought of it. I've never said this before. I wish I were Mike White. (laughs) Right. But as we were saying, I mean, it's interesting because, um, I get the feeling that Mike White was asked to write season one of Laurie Lotus and maybe wasn't anticipating how much of a hit it would be. I mean, you always hope that these things would be a hit. And then season two becomes kind of like, well, how do you do a season two of something like this? Uh, Murray Bartlett's dead. Um, Maybe, you know, some of the cast wasn't available for season two. Um, you know, or their stories were kind of over, what do you do with that? And then what elements become canon and what elements are, you know, how do you, do you shake it up? Um, They they turn it into an anthology. Right. right. It's done. It's done. And it's its own thing. And it's a huge hit. And I I wish it, I I want to take many more virtual vacations at the White Brothers. Right. All right, Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> Arrivederci. Yeah. One of the odder pop culture phenomena of this fall season has been the introduction of Weird, a biopic of sorts about Weird Al Yankovic, which is airing, well, aired first in some film festivals, but for regular people to see it, it's showing only on the Roku channel, which I guess used to be Quibi, uh, Quibi, whatever you call it. Now it is its own thing, and this is an original movie uh, that is not that not everyone is able to see, but anyone with the Roku can see for free with commercials. And we ran a piece about Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic story, in on the site this week. Danny Gallagher, who wrote the piece, his first piece for Book and Film Globe, joins me to talk about it. Hello, Danny. Hey. Hey, so yeah, so weird, uh, as you pointed out in the piece, is you know, it's like a, it's a satire of musical biopics, but Weird Al's target is the same target as, as his target always is, which is the, the bloated music industry. Yes. So, um, w- what ways does he take it on? Uh, I, uh, like I said in the piece, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm going to try my best to do that, because he does... Because uh, uh, as I mean, I'm a Weird Al fan, so maybe I go into it with a little bias. He was the first music I ever got into when I was a kid. Because my parents, I grew up in the '80s, where every kind of music that wasn't Dan Fogelberg could kill you. Uh, and Weird Al was, you know, singing comedy songs, so they're like, "Okay, you can listen to that," which got me into all the music that could kill me in the '80s. Yeah, uh, I had a similar experience. You know, he was he was a, a an introduction, and for someone who liked satire, uh, as oh, I yeah. did, Weird Al was 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 a great hero. You know, and I, I kind of fell off of him um, as uh, 
as I entered adulthood, I wasn't really following Weird Al in the 90s and 2000s. Then I went to see him live in concert here in Austin two or three years ago, and it was just, it was fantastic. I'm like, how is this guy? Oh, yeah. How is he still going? How is it? How is it <laughs> possible? And, you know, it's like, it's, he's like the opposite of what you see in the movie, which is a, you know, drug and sex and alcohol fueled <laughs> egomaniac, whereas in reality, he's a very clean living, like positive, nerdy, nice guy. Right. And, so, uh, and his band's the same way too. I actually got to meet, I've interviewed him a couple of times. And then when he came to town the third time, I was like, I should probably interview his band because they were doing a show right after theirs. And his band's the same way. You know, there's no, no as far as I know, there's no alcoholism or, you know, anything crazy. So that kind of gives him license to, to do a biopic that's all, you know, the angry artist, artist that's angry at the world. And there's, I mean, there's some really funny stuff in, you know, the the way he, he creates the parody songs in, in the show. It's so so ridiculous, you know, out of like desperation or vengeance or, or, or this weird lust and desire. It's just, it's on a drug trip. You know, one of the, one of the best, (laughs) one of the best, one of the best running gags in the movie is that, um, he wrote "Eat It" before Michael Jackson wrote "Beat It." <laughs> yes, Eat that's it. one of the funniest. That's one of my favorite parts because I was like, "How are they gonna?" It, it's literally like all those other biopics. It's like you think you know the story, and you go in thinking like, and you and you see in the trailer he actually writes "My Bologna" after he hears "My Sharona," so you think it's just gonna be that, but that one he actually turns around. Yeah. And he gets super mad because he's like, "I'm not doing parodies anymore." I just spoiled a, a, a okay. kind it's of a, a kind of a plot point, but it was it was okay. oh, it had me laughing my ass off. The plot doesn't really <laughs> matter much in this movie, really. It's like it, it is, you know. Here's the thing: like, I don't know. I'm a fan of satirical movies, and this sure. movie, this movie does not reach the same heights of absurdity. As Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which is like the the all time, you know, there will oh, yeah. be another, never be another biopic parody as good as that. No, I mean that that I will admit that has it working against it. If this came out first, maybe if, if Weird Al did did Walk Hard first, like I think you would. I don't know if you'd see the same bits because I I think Al is actually clever enough to think like, oh, what if Beat It came later after like i think those those kind of beats would still be in it but it still has to like distinguish itself well, from that so it, the thing that walk hard has that uh the weird movie doesn't is that you know weird al you 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 know these songs like you know i love rock yeah movie, yeah like a surgeon all this all this stuff that we've been hearing for four, 30 40 years is in the movie whereas walk hard had original parodies of johnny cash style songs true um, and so that added the element of surprise to it. Whereas with, with, there weren't any new songs written for weird. So, right. I, don't know. I mean, I think he, he did the best with what he had to play with. And I think, I still think it lands. I mean, so the, the way they establish, you know, how he becomes a musician is, you know, with my, he hears, he literally is like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then my Sharona starts playing. And then one of his bandmates, and he actually uses his bandmates' real names. I think it was John uh, Bumeter Schwartz says, "Hey Al, make me a sandwich." And then he goes and pulls a package of bologna out of bologna out of the 
the fridge and starts basically doing the lyrics like toast in the bread and and stuff like that. The inspiration comes to me. There's also a very funny scene. My favorite scene in the movie is this pool party at Dr. Demento's house. We're like, yes, that's, that is arguably the best scene. You know, where Jack Black is doing this incredible Wolfman Jack imitation. Yeah. Conan O'Brien is Andy Warhol. Like a lot of 80, you know, Prince is there at Dr. Demento's house. Elvira. Actually, everybody's there. Like uh, Dimitri Martin was, was Tiny Tim. Yes. In that scene. No, I didn't recognize. You are made, I, I remember seeing the Pee Wee Herman. Uh, and it's actually oh, your mate Tacoma from, from uh, Lonely Island. Yeah. Plays Pee Wee Herman, which yeah, I didn't even recognize. And that's another uh, Lonely Island is a good uh, comparison as well because I love their musical bio. Yes. Pop star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. Uh, that movie is <laughs> hilarious. And again, it benefits, well, first of all, it's like it's more about um, boy bands than uh, right. and, and hip hop than like the kinds of music that they're parodying in Walk Hard or Weird. But again, like that movie really benefits from like fresh Lonely Island songs, you know, which right. again, I just think, I mean, it, it does, it, it is, it, it does have that kind of heart car, uh, car, cart before the horse and that they already have the songs Yeah. that, you know, they have to, ins- so like, yes, you, the, the songs themselves aren't as funny because you know what they are. Um, and he did write an original song that it plays over the credits that that actually is pretty funny, but okay. it's at the end. That's the yeah. The, yeah. Well, the, the what, tag is, what, part. Is, what is that a satire? I'm nitpicking. No, that's fine. What is it's that, it's like a sat. It again, it's like a satire of like I don't know if Walk the Line had a, had Johnny Cash write an original song. I don't think uh, so. F- for that movie, it's yeah. kind of that trend of like I think Jerry Lee Lewis did did something for Great Balls of maybe not. I don't know. I, I swear there's a movie about a musician and then the musician did a song, an original like, song about his life. It's like a Weird Al. I get about the life of Weird Al. Yes. But he, and it's called Now You Know, and it does, you know, it's basically like you thought you knew everything about me. And so he plays with that trope of, I'm trying to think of a, there's a song in my head and I can't think of the name of it that's like that, about well, a musician that's I will, like. I will say this. If you want to know something about the actual life of Weird Al Yankovic, this is not the movie. <laughs> because no, it's actually, the whole thing is a there, there, there is one part that, like, it was true, but he played with it in the pool party scene with Queen. I won't spoil it, but he actually did play with Queen at Live Aid. He did play with Queen at Live Aid. <laughs> yeah, he did, and he switched out the person that invited him. I forget which one it was in the movie. Because because. Um, it, because in, in this movie, he, he, he one of the funniest moments is when Queen invites him to play at Live Aid at Wembley Stadium, and he's like, "Hard pass." Yeah, yeah. He's too big a star. <laughs> he's too big a star to play with Queen at Live Aid. Right. Yeah, I, we have to mention too. You know, Daniel Radcliffe is Weird Al Yankovic in this, and I felt like he was pretty funny. <laughs> Got to say, like, he, oh, he's he is, I, he, he's great actor. I love him. Yeah, you he, know, he really he's a, fully committed. Fully committed to this ridiculousness, and you know it's like you, you got to right. you got to respect Daniel Radcliffe for this. And there's some other great stuff too. I thought Rain Wilson was very very funny as Doctor Demento. Yes, um, Evan. Rachel the way they got Daniel Radcliffe, I, I, the minute I knew he was perfect for this was Al said he saw him sing Tom Lehrer's 
uh, song of the periodic table elements on a on a British talk show, like word for word. Yeah, like a legitimate nerd. Yeah. Like a legitimate, yes, a legitimate nerd. Legitimate comedy nerd. Legitimate comedy nerd playing the king of the comedy nerds, Weird Al Yankovic. And <laughs> Weird is airing uh, now on the Roku channel, which is, you know, you, again, you got to have a Roku to find it. Although I, Weird Al has been on uh, social media sort of subtly encouraging people who don't have Rokus or live in foreign countries to, to bit torrent this thing. Sure. Which is, which is it's yeah. pretty funny. And sort of part of it. Pop and actually, all you need is I watch it on my phone. All you need is really the app, the, the Roku app. You just, you, yeah, that's all you need. That's all I, I needed. Yeah, I, I had the Roku TV there advertising it, and I was like, all right, I guess it, it does have commercials. So it, <laughs> it took a while. I was like, so you know, I think it might there might have been a little bit less right. of, less of is this over yet. If it hadn't had all those words. <laughs> whatever, it's pretty funny. Yeah, you know, if you like Weird Al, you'll like Weird, and uh, you know, see Weird Al if he comes to town. It's a concert experience that you won't see every day. Absolutely. All right, Danny. Thanks a lot for joining me. Yeah, thank you. All right, thanks, Danny. Keep being weird. That's what I say. I guess that's what I say. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and to Matthew Werlich for talking to me about The White Lotus, now on HBO Max. I am Neil Pollock. I am your host. I am your editor. We are Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com, covering the world of books and film and streaming TV and whatever else catches our fancy. We'll be on the air forever. Book and Film Globe forever. I will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. Thebookhousemilburn.com. <laughs>